When filmmaker Michael Cimino passed away in 2016 at the age of 77, there were basically two stories that people focused on. It's the two stories that everyone tells about Cimino. First, there is the high of his 1978 picture, The Deer Hunter, an epic about three guys from Pittsburgh before, during, and after the Vietnam War. The Deer Hunter was a smash at the box office and praised by critics. It would be nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won five. Best Picture, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Supporting Actor for Christopher Walken, and Best Director for Michael Cimino. It was the first time Meryl Streep would be nominated for an Oscar, the first of many. In 1996, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2007, the American Film Institute named it the 53rd best American film of all time. After seeing The Deer Hunter, Jan Scruggs, a Vietnam War veteran, first conceived of the idea of what would become the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Yes, that memorial. When the memorial opened in 1982, Chimino was on hand, having been invited by Scruggs. The Deer Hunter was Chimino's second film after the modestly successful Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And it was a very big deal. Then there's the other story that people like to tell about Michael Chimino. And if you ask me, it's the story people seem to prefer telling. This is about the movie he made right after The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate was another epic, this time about the Old West. Having had such a big hit previously... Chimino was given carte blanche and could do whatever he wanted. And so he did. The production of Heaven's Gate is much more well-known than the film itself. Chimino was given initially a budget of $11.6 million by United Artists and left alone. Chimino was a meticulous filmmaker, and when the slightest detail wasn't right, he had it done again. When a street wasn't built to his exact specifications, he had it torn down and built again. He spent an entire day filming one shot over and over again. He would end up shooting 1.3 million feet of film, which is roughly 220 hours of footage for Heaven's Gate. The budget ballooned as production went out of control. $11.6 million quickly became 20, which quickly became 30, and would end up being $44 million. After filming, Chimino locked himself in an editing room and wouldn't let anyone in until he was finished. When he emerged, his first cut of Heaven's Gate was over five and a half hours long. A second was made and came in at the shorter but still very long time of 219 minutes. That's over three and a half hours. This is the version that would be initially released into theaters. It would play for only one week and then get pulled after the reception to the film was less than positive. A third cut would get wide release five months later in April of 1981. That cut would be a mere two hours and 29 minutes, and that release was a disaster. Critics hated it, and audiences stayed away. Heaven's Gate would end up grossing only $3.5 million. Transamerica, the parent company for United Artists, who produced Heaven's Gate, hated all of the negative press that they received from the film. This would end up being a major reason why they would sell the studio to MGM, which ended the long run of United Artists as a major standalone studio. And Michael Cimino would end up winning the 1981 Razzie Award for Worst Director. 
Those are the two stories of Michael Cimino. Best director, worst director. But there's another story, a third story, if you will, and I think it's almost as interesting. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at Michael Cimino and the production of a mid-1980s mafia movie that would get so contentious it had to be settled in court in a story we're calling How to Slice a Sicilian. Welcome to the industry. Losing $40 million and being blamed for ending United Artists as an independent studio did not end Michael Cimino's career. Cimino was an interesting character, a sometimes brilliant filmmaker with a keen eye for beautiful shots who also sometimes didn't know when to say when. Here's Cimino talking about his philosophy on filmmaking. I don't believe in storyboarding. I don't like copying a two-dimensional drawing on a piece of paper. I want to be free in a 360-degree space. I call it demolishing the wall. The average movie consists of about 350 setups. There's 350 separate shots which have to be made. Most of those 350 shots will be close-ups of faces, talking heads, and you're painfully aware that you're watching someone being photographed reciting some lines. And the idea is to smash that wall, move around. Otherwise, it's a proscenium. You want to get to the real world. After all, movies have something essentially magical about them. In the words of my friend Bernardo Bertolucci, you're creating a nostalgia for a past that never existed. When you think about it, it's really no wonder that studios were still interested in Chimino even after Heaven's Gate. After all, he did direct The Deer Hunter, and there was always a chance he could recreate that magic, right? He was attached to the 1984 drama The Pope of Greenwich Village for a while. It was a picture about a couple of low-level gangsters. He didn't like the screenplay, and when his rewrites were going to take too long for MGM, he left the picture. Next up for Chimino was Footloose the now-iconic 80s movie about the small town that forbade dancing. Paramount wanted Herb Ross to direct, but when Ross proved to be too difficult to sign, they turned to Cimino. For four months, Cimino worked on Footloose. He saw it more as a standard musical and began making changes to suit his vision. Paramount saw it differently. Seeing the movie become more and more extravagant, they got a bit nervous and fired Cimino. Then they went and paid Herb Ross whatever he wanted to take over. The third time would be the charm, though, for Cimino. His next project would get finished. He was hired by Dino De Laurentiis to write and direct Year of the Dragon, a gangster picture starring Mickey Rourke. De Laurentiis, you may remember for our episode, the Dino De Laurentiis Million Dollar Giveaway. If you haven't already, check it out. I hear it's pretty good. The production of Year of the Dragon was impressively problem-free. Cimino proved to be very efficient by finishing the movie on time and on budget. You care too much, Stanley. Maybe everybody's right. I'm chasing something that doesn't exist. This is not the France or Brooklyn. It's not even New York. It's Chinatown fight. It can be very easy or it can be very hard. From Michael Cimino. 
Academy Award-winning director of The Deer Hunter comes a powerful and provocative new film, Year of the Dragon. The movie wasn't a box office success, making only about $18 million versus its $24 million budget. But it was a win for Chimino and that it helped to repair his reputation. This brings us to The Sicilian. The Sicilian began life as a novel by Mario Puzo that's set in the world of another Puzo novel, The Godfather. In the book and the movie The Godfather, you probably remember the part where Michael Corleone is hiding out in Sicily. This book takes place just before he comes back to New York and loses his soul. Don Corleone, his father, tells Michael he needs to find Salvatore Giuliano. He's a kind of Robin Hood who steals from the mafia and gives to the poor or something like that. Michael needs to find Giuliano and bring him to New York before the local mafia finds him first and kills him. The story then shifts to Giuliano running around Sicily and getting in and out of trouble with the mafia. Even though the Corleones are in the novel, the story is really about the Giuliano character. A mafia novel by Mario Puzo, the man who wrote The Godfather, is too enticing for movie studios to resist. The movie rights to The Sicilian sold for $1 million to Gladden Entertainment. Since Paramount Pictures owned The Godfather and the rights to all of those characters, none of them would appear in The Sicilian. But that was okay with Gladden. Gladden had started as a production company in 1984 and was headed by Bruce McNall, a colorful entrepreneur who had made his money dealing in rare and antique coins. In addition to coins, McNall has also owned the NHL team, the Los Angeles Kings, the CFL team, the Toronto Argonauts, and a few racehorses. In 1993, he pled guilty to various fraud charges and admitted to bilking banks out of $236 million over a 10-year period. For this, he would spend almost five years in jail. But all that comes later for Bruce. The other head of Gladden Entertainment was David Beagleman. Beagleman spent his career in show business as an agent and running studios like Columbia and MGM. In the 70s, Beagleman was caught up in a scandal when actor Cliff Robertson blew the whistle on Beagleman's embezzling while running Columbia Pictures. We went over that story in a season one episode of The Industry. And yeah, that one's pretty good too. Beagleman was high on the Sicilian and thought Michael Cimino would be the perfect person to bring it to life. There was a little hesitation, though, when Cimino insisted that Christopher Lambert be cast as the lead. After all, the movie is called The Sicilian, and Christopher Lambert is French. Beagleman and McNall realized that he was not going to budge on this issue and agreed to the casting and hired Cimino. The Sicilian had a budget of around $16 million and filmed in 1986 at the newly built De Laurentiis studio in North Carolina and in Sicily. And this production was almost problem-free. Cimino had called Beagleman and McNall needing some assistance. He was having some problems getting access to locations and labor in Sicily. It seemed the local mafia was not having it. According to McNall's autobiography, he and Beagleman went to Sicily and met with them. The issue wasn't money or respect or even a protest of negative Sicilian stereotypes. Nope, their issue was that they wanted in. They all wanted to be in the movie, and they got what they wanted. Small roles were created or they were used as background extras, but one way or another, the local mafia was accommodated. Aside from that, the production of The Sicilian went off without a hitch. The problem came once Chimino went into the editing room. 
He locked himself in and months later came out declaring he was finished. The Sicilian had a runtime of 150 minutes or two and a half hours, which when you really think about it is pretty short for Chimino. But it wasn't short enough for Gladden Entertainment. They had a deal for a two hour movie. This was 30 minutes too long. Chimino initially refused to cut the movie anymore, but changed his mind when Beagleman reminded him that his contract, which guaranteed Chimino final cut, was only for a two-hour movie, not a minute more. Enraged, Chimino went back into the editing room and came out only a few days later with a new two-hour cut of The Sicilian. He sent it over to Gladden Entertainment. When Beagleman and McNall watched this new cut of The Sicilian, they were shocked. Chimino had cut it down to two hours, but he had done it by taking all of the action scenes out of the movie. According to McNall's autobiography, the script had a scene with a big wedding that comes under attack. In Chimino's new cut, there was a big wedding scene, followed by all of the same people now in the hospital still wearing tuxedos. The attack was left out, and subsequently, the movie made no sense this way. Chimino let them know if they wanted a two-hour cut, this was it. And since he had final cut on it, they could either take it this way or they could take the two-and-a-half-hour cut he had originally made. Beagleman responded by telling Chimino he was in breach of contract and that final cut would now revert to him, that his two-hour version was done in bad faith and that he had now lost his right to final cut. Chimino then turned around and filed a claim in federal court as well as a claim with the DGA to stop Beagleman from cutting the long version of the picture. Chimino then turned around and filed a claim in federal district court as well as a claim with the DGA to stop Beagleman from cutting the long version of the picture. In Gladden's official filing to the court, they claimed, quote, The picture was not what they had bargained for, did not conform to the screenplay, was incomprehensible and completely uncommercial. Chimino's lawyers argued that his contract states that he had final cut and that final cut on a contract is legally binding and must be upheld. This was based on a previous court case involving Warren Beatty in the movie Reds. In that case, Beatty, who directed and starred in the 1981 picture Reds, objected when the television network ABC was going to show the movie and cut out six and a half minutes in order to make it fit better on their schedule. Beatty claimed he had final cut on Reds and that those rights were binding, even for television. Cuts could not be made to Reds without Beatty's approval. Beatty won his case. Paramount Pictures, who produced Reds, wasn't exactly happy about this, as showing movies on television was a revenue source for them. This precedent had been set only two years prior to the Sicilian case. The case would be decided on the surprise testimony of Dino De Laurentiis. Beagleman and McNall had gone to De Laurentiis, asking about his experiences with Chimino. De Laurentiis vouched for him, and Chimino had gotten the agreement for final cut for a two-hour movie when he showed Beagleman his contract that he had with De Laurentiis for the Year of the Dragon. On the stand, though, De Laurentiis had a different story. Yes, Chimino had signed a contract with Dino for Year of the Dragon. Yes, that contract did include final cut. But then, Dino had a side letter drafted that rescinded the final cut aspect of the contract. The judge ruled in favor of Gladden Entertainment, saying that Chimino had gotten final cut with Gladden under false pretenses. 
or basically that he had lied to get it. Beagleman then edited The Sicilian himself down to an hour and 55 minutes. I'm not sure why he needed to take out those extra five minutes, but I'm sure he had his reasons. Also of note was that this was the second lawsuit regarding The Sicilian. The other was filed by writer Gore Vidal, claiming that he had written the screenplay which had been credited to writer Stephen Shagan. Vidal won his lawsuit in November of 1987, about one month after The Sicilian opened in theaters. The Sicilian was released in October, finishing in seventh place that first weekend and grossed a domestic total of only $5.4 million. The Sicilian was blasted by critics, and Lambert's performance was singled out as stilted, with reviewers pointing out that he was indeed badly miscast in the role. The Sicilian wound up being another flop on Chimino's resume. That Chimino wasn't honest about his Final Cut contract shouldn't be that much of a surprise. The fact is, this wasn't the first time Chimino had an issue with the truth. He frequently lied about his age, for example. He was born in 1939, which would have made him about 40 years old around the time the Deer Hunter was released. But a number of times he told reporters and others that he was 35. His birthday is still erroneously listed in some places as 1943, since that's what he was telling people. In the year 2000, he was doing an interview with Vanity Fair when the issue of his age came up. Chimino decided the way to settle it would be to prove his age and produced a photocopy of his passport that said he was born in 1952, which would have put him 13 years younger than he actually was. Chimino claimed he got his start in documentaries. Also, not true. I'm not sure why he would claim this one. He got his start making commercials, and he made a lot of them in the 1960s. He was actually considered to be really talented and very much in demand in the commercial industry. He made commercials for Pepsi, United Airlines, and Kodak, among others. He also claimed to have nearly completed a doctorate at Yale. This was also not accurate. Again, I'm not sure why he made this one up, because the truth is still fairly impressive. He did graduate from Yale University, receiving his Bachelor and Master of Fine Arts, both in painting. At the time The Deer Hunter was up for nine Academy Awards, Chimino did an interview with the New York Times that sent Universal Studios into a panic. Chimino had claimed that he joined the Army in 1968 and was attached to a Green Beret medical unit. And while he trained in Texas, he was never sent to Vietnam. Pointing out it was the time of the Tet Offensive, he made it sound like he had jumped in the army out of a sense of patriotic duty. The truth was, Chimino was in the army, but it was in the reserves. And while he was a medic in the reserves, he had served in 1962, not 1968, and it was nowhere near the Green Berets. And yes, he also told the Times he was 35 years old. Universal was in full campaign mode on the deer hunter at the time. When the Times reporter called a Universal publicist to say she couldn't find any corroborating information to Chimino's claims, Universal suddenly had a problem on their hands. According to a Vanity Fair article, Tom Mount, the president of Universal, was called and reacted like this. He told the fucking New York Times he was a medic in the Green Berets? I know this guy. He was no more a medic in the Green Berets than I'm a rutabaga. Yes, that's an actual quote. Mount then went to his boss, Lou Wasserman, 
a guy behind the guy if there ever was one. Wasserman was one of those guys who had connections to seemingly everyone and everything. When Mount got Wasserman on the line, he said, I think in 24 hours the New York Times is going to run an article about a delusional director. We have millions of dollars in this fucking thing. I need the fiction that this guy is connected or we're fucked. Wasserman simply responded with, I'll call you back. The next day, the call came back not from Wasserman, but his secretary. She gave Mount the number from someone at the Pentagon who would verify Chimino's bogus Green Beret claims. The New York Times would end up running the article, going with everything Chimino had claimed. The truth about Chimino's military record would come out just a few months later in an issue of Harper's Magazine. But by then, Chimino had already won his Oscar and had already started working on Heaven's Gate. He responded to the article by saying he would sue, but he never did. After The Sicilian, Chimino would direct only two more movies in his career, both unsuccessful at the box office. In total, he only directed seven films, but left an undeniable mark on the industry. In 2012, a new edit of Heaven's Gate played at the 69th Venice Film Festival. It was 216 minutes, three minutes shorter than that first version that hit theaters, and it played very well. There has been a somewhat of a revision on the thinking of Heaven's Gate as a bad movie. Now, the needle hasn't moved entirely on that film, and I'm not sure that it ever will, but it's definitely been looked at differently these days, some people claiming it as a masterpiece. As for The Sicilian, Chimino's version, or something close to it, finally did get a release on DVD in 2016. And after that was released... Well, the reviews were pretty much still the same. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Dan Delgado. Music in this episode is from The Jingle Punks and Josh Lip and The Overtimers. Thanks to my brothers, Eric and Joey Delgado, who played Tom Mount and Lou Wasserman. Cover art for this episode and every episode this season has been by the great Cat Manderfield. Check her out at catmanderfield.com. If you want to follow the show on social media, you certainly can. We're on Twitter at TheIndustry13, Instagram at Industry underscore podcast, and Facebook at TheIndustryPod. Yes, I probably should have gotten the same name for all of these social media things, but, you know, sometimes you're just not thinking. Articles, links, and other show notes are available for this episode at our website at industrypodcast.org slash articles I've been told that podcasts need to have a call to action so here we go if you enjoyed this episode please feel free to share it with friends and anyone else you think may enjoy it we need you to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts Stitcher CastBox and anywhere else you can thanks to everyone who has already done so far except that guy who left a one star review he gets no thank yous if you're one of those types who likes to support podcasts, well, I've been waiting for you. You can donate to the show at our website, industrypodcast.com. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon with another lesser-known story of the things that went on in the industry. Good night.